Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with David Armitage about his book about the development of the concept of civil war, entitled Civil Wars, A History in Ideas. David, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Mark. Well, it's great to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Yes, I'm uh, currently a professor of history at Harvard University. Uh, I've lived in the States for about 25 years now, though I've done everything I can to keep my original accent. As you might tell, I'm not originally an American, but I come from Britain. And most of the time, I teach a combination of the history of ideas and international history, uh, usually over quite large expanses of space and time. And the book very much comes out of those experiences of teaching and interacting with students about the big ideas that they're interested in and trying to educate those also to a wider audience through my writing. What was it that led you to a book about the idea of civil war specifically? Uh, Very simply, a coincidence. I was working about a decade ago at the Huntington Library, which, as some of your listeners may know, is a beautiful, very rich uh, collection of art, gardens, and also rare books and manuscripts in Southern California. Uh, I was there working on a completely different project, and this was in the middle of the, uh, the Second Gulf War, the Iraq War, when there was a lot of talk about Questions like uh, the treatment of enemy combatants uh, in particular. One name was being bandied about at that time, the name of a guy called Francis Lieber, uh, a 19th century lawyer uh, who had written the first clause of war for the Union Army during the U.S. Civil War. I knew his papers were at Huntington, and so just out of curiosity, one day I called them up and I found in the middle of those papers a debate he was having with uh, his boss, uh, a Union general called Henry Halleck, about the meaning of the term civil war in the midst of what we now call the U.S. Civil War. Why was this a coincidence? Well, uh, it struck me in particular because there was a debate going on, as it were, outside the walls of the library at that exact moment about whether the violence in Iraq at that time should be called a civil war or maybe something different. Maybe it was terrorism or insurgency. This was quite a political debate. This was 2006, 2007. And as Mark Twain allegedly said, some, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And as I was reading the debates about what to call the violence in Iraq, and in particular whether to call it a civil war, at the same time as I was reading these papers from the mid-19th century about what was a civil war, I thought, aha, here is a rhyme. This is very intriguing. Um, it wasn't a topic. Civil war was not a topic I went looking for. I feel in some ways it came looking for me. But once those two together, I thought, that's, that's two points along a spectrum or a continuum. And I need to trace out where these debates come from. And also more broadly, it occurred to me as I thought about it more, I needed to find out just why, even 150 years after the mid-19th century, there was still such political contention and bitter debate about whether or not to call certain conflicts civil war. And that led me on uh, a, a journey of exploration over uh, about 10 years until the book uh, was finally finished, 
in which I tried to put into context contemporary debates in the 21st century in a much longer historical perspective. Yes, I was thinking as I was reading it, it's, it's, it's a short book, and yet it's also such a large one in the sense that you cover this very uh, expansive spread of time, tracing this idea of civil war back. And as you explain in the first part of the book, you, you, you find it, you, you find, you, you uh, root the book with the Romans. And I was wondering if you could start us off uh, in terms of examining the book itself as to uh, why the Romans and and how it was that they framed this concept of civil war and why they did. Yeah, I, I, uh, as I was investigating where these contemporary ideas came from and also where the 19th century ideas I'd stumbled across had emerged from, uh, I started working backwards as historians do. We want to find out what came before um, the particular idea or the particular event that we're looking at. And this led me uh, pretty quickly actually back to the Romans. Why the Romans in particular? Because, as I argue in the book, they invented the idea of civil war. They were the first to call these conflicts civil, and they were the first to call them wars. That seems very simple, but there's a lot packed into that. Uh, that uh, they packed together two ideas. Uh, uh, civil in Latin comes from the Roman term kives, which means simply citizen. And we get other words like civility and civilization from that word, as well as civil. When the, when the Romans uh, talked about a civil war, or in Latin, a bellum civile, uh, they meant quite specifically a war against fellow citizens, uh, which for them was almost the very image of horror and even in some sense a paradox. They always called their wars uh, by the name of the enemies whom they were fighting. And in this case, a fellow citizen was someone exactly whom you should not be fighting against. Uh, that should be somebody who's bound into your community by legal status, by political identity. Why do I say that the Romans invented this? For a couple of reasons. One, they were well aware uh, that they had, uh, had to come up with a name for something quite peculiar. Uh, they uh, said that, for instance, the ancient Greeks, their predecessors in, in the city of Athens, for instance, had things like seditions, tumults, dissensions, but they did not have civil wars, the kinds of violence that were on the streets of Athens or in other Greek cities, for example, during the Peloponnesian War, uh, uh, were, were either not wars or they were not civil, uh, the Romans believed. And so they, the Romans, had to come up with a novel term to describe uh, large-scale organized conflicts among those who had a common political or legal identity. And that's the second reason why the Romans believed, and I also believe with them, that they had invented the concept of civil war. When the Greeks talked about similar kinds of violence, they talked about it as a form of violence within the clan, within the bloodline. So they had a kind of uh, ethnic conception of uh, the community within which that conflict took place, not a political or legal conception in the way that the Romans did. So although I talk a little bit in the book about Greek conceptions of conflict internal to the community, I really start the book with the Romans because of that invention, which they were conscious of, and also crucially because, uh, as I argue throughout about two-thirds of the book, until at least the late 18th century, even deep into the 19th century, Roman conceptions of civil war, Roman narratives of civil war, Roman metaphors and images of civil war uh, continued to have a stranglehold on at least the Western imagination uh, for almost two millennia to come. 
Why was it that the Romans uh, were basically driven to define it so well? Because I and, and here what I'm getting at is you, you talk about it, it not just as an abstract debate that people are having in works, but you integrate it into the events of their time. And I was wondering if you could explain uh, how it was the Romans basically came across this this uh, challenge of defining it. Because as you explained, it's not just one event that they're dealing with. It's basically a huge chunk of their history that they're having to come to terms with. They can't just treat it as an outlier, can they? Exactly. And that's, that's what became so compelling for them as well as, as, well as so terrifying that uh, once a cycle of internal conflicts which rose to the level of war uh, had begun, uh, in particular in the first century BCE, uh, they tended to repeat themselves, that the, the followers or the ancestors or the imitators of those who had battled against fellow citizens tended to come back over a cycle of about a century, uh, all the way up to uh, the era of Julius Caesar, and then onwards to the, uh, the reinstitution of monarchy in the form of empire under the Emperor Augustus. Uh, they looked back over a century of their history at that point and, and tried to work out why was it that Rome had suffered so many civil wars? Why did they come back so frequently? Uh, was there some curse at the very heart of Roman civilization uh, that determined uh, that uh, these civil conflicts would recur? Uh, was there some structural imbalance in the Roman constitution? Was there a moral failing, perhaps, at the very heart uh, of, Ro of the Roman city and then the Roman uh, civilization itself that determined they would be forever uh, determined to suffer uh, these conflicts? And they started telling stories about it, not only historical narratives, about the sequence of civil wars and how they were linked together, but also uh, trying to understand them through um, uh, origin stories like the myth of Romulus and Remus, for instance, that had been around in Roman culture uh, before the period of the civil wars, but it became repurposed during that moment as an explanation for fratricidal violence, for the original blood-soaked act, uh, a blood-soaked ground indeed from which uh, all future Roman conflicts had come. So a whole series of uh, commentators, uh, uh, Roman orators, Roman poets, Roman historians, uh, all the way from Cicero, even deep into uh, the Christian, understand uh, what was the, uh, the, uh, the motivation for this sequence. So what did it tell them about Roman history and Roman civilization itself? And that corpus of reflection on this, which again, you can find in poets like Horace and Virgil, and uh, orators like Cicero, and, and a whole host of um, Roman historians, almost every Roman historian reflected on this, that corpus of reflection continued to resonate uh, down the centuries, uh, even into our own time. And as you explained, it's not a single unified concept as you, that you have, as you've described it, uh, these three enduring narratives. You have a Republican narrative, you have an imperial narrative, and you have the Christian narrative, and each one approaches the concept of civil war differently than the other two. That's quite, that's quite right. Um, the, the, the Republican narrative, uh, not capital R Republican, obviously, in our terms, but uh, Republican in the sense of anti-monarchical and ultimately anti-imperial, uh, explained uh, 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 the, the civil wars in moral terms as evidence of uh, the corruption of the Roman Republic, uh, in particular its corruption uh, by 
uh, its conquests, its expansive and uh, imperial or proto-imperial nature, uh, reverting back upon Rome itself. The flip side of that, or the, the inverse version of that, was the monarchical narrative that you mentioned, or an imperial narrative, uh, which argued uh, from the, the era of Augustus and the, uh, the Roman Empire uh, that the only solution to civil war was to reinstitute monarchy, to create um, an all-powerful emperor uh, who could finally tamp down and prevent the explosion of these internal tensions, and that would be uh, the, uh, the only way to prevent uh, mon- uh, to, to prevent um, uh, civil wars in future, because they were a disease of republicanism, not a diseased form of republicanism. And then the Christian account is uh, associated especially, but not exclusively, with St. Augustine in his uh, enormous work, the, C- the City of God, and uh, a very important narrative running all the way through uh, the, the City of God, uh, is his moral accounting of the uh, the, uh, the ethical failures of Rome itself, and he uses that narrative of civil wars drawn from his predecessors, uh, like the uh, the Roman historian Sallust in particular, uh, to expose uh, the ways in which uh, the, uh, Rome itself, both republic and empire. Uh, were corrupted uh, in the pre-Christian era, uh, and uh, the only uh, truly legitimate community, the only truly legitimate city to take this title, uh, was the city of God, the community of the eternal community of all Christian believers, uh, who would finally be free of these earthly uh, dissensions and uh, battles that had been uh, so destructive in the form of the Roman civil wars themselves. One of the things I enjoyed in your second part where you're talking about how early modern Europe started to come to terms with civil war was when you link it to how they referenced the Roman historians. And you mentioned a lot of the traditional names such as uh, Livy and Plutarch, but you also mentioned, uh, and I apologize for mispronouncing this, uh, Lucan, and how and how he's a historian that you don't see mentioned as often today, but as you describe, he loomed very large in the his, in the uh, reading lists of so many of these early modern authors, like say Thomas Hobbes, who found in uh, his works a lot of things that were very relevant to uh, their experiences in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. That's right, and uh, and and just to, to fill fill in for your readers who are probably not familiar with him. Uh, uh, Lucan is a historian. Uh, he tells a historical story about uh, the Roman civil wars and their, their, their moral origins and, and effects, uh, but he does this in poetry. He writes uh, a kind of anti-epic. Uh, if we think of the poet Virgil and his Aeneid as the classic Roman epic, uh, Lucan uh, writes an anti-epic uh, in, in the shadow of Virgil and in some ways as an opposition to Virgil uh, about uh, Rome's debilities, and he portrays the, the Roman civil wars uh, in terms which are intimate and terrifying. Uh, he ventriloquizes victims of the civil war and uh, the survivors who are left and their lamentations, uh, but he also uh, portrays it metaphorically uh, in terms of the, uh, the disruption of nature itself. There are lots of storms and volcanoes and other kinds of natural disasters uh, which he uses to uh, to uh, to uh, figure uh, the uh, destructiveness of Roman civil war itself, and his poem um, it's, de- it's deeply 
gripping. It has a very modern sensibility in a way, uh, and is very appealing to our modern sense of the uh, the horrors and the tragedy up with um, natural disaster as well in some, in some ways. Uh, and he, produ- he provides an enormously uh, compelling uh, vision, which is a highly political vision as well, uh, of uh, human conflict, which does grip the early modern imagination, not just there as well. There, there's a, a translation of Lucan in Iceland in the Middle Ages. Uh, he's still being quoted, I show in the book, uh, on the, uh, the, uh, the Confederate monument in Arlington Cemetery, which is put up in 1919. Uh, he's not the, the only Roman transmitter of the horrifying experience of civil war, but in many ways he's the most influential. And he drops out of the picture a bit in the early part of the 20th century, but I think it's noticeable that uh, not just scholarly interest, but for example, translations of Lucan boom again uh, after 1989, that is after the, uh, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think in the, in the aftermath of the, the Yugoslav civil wars, civil war in Africa, uh, the apprehension that uh, civil war is a, a now a very characteristic and widespread and extremely destructive form of uh, human uh, conflict in the contemporary world in the late 20th and 21st centuries. There's a, there's a new Lucan boom going on again. He speaks very much to our times as he did to the turbulence of, say, the 17th century as well. You mentioned, you just mentioned the, the turbulence of the 17th century. What was going on then that led them to seek out ways of trying to come to terms with this idea of civil war? And, and, and how were they attempting to do so? Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by they, I, I should specify that uh, we're, we're talking mostly about early modern Europe here in particular, but if you take uh, the period, say, between the 1630s and the 1660s, the very middle of the, of the 17th century, uh, even contemporaries were aware that something uh, strange and uh, disruptive was going on, not just in, uh, in particular nations or states of Europe, but across Europe as well. So uh, uh, one later historian talked about simultaneous revolutions taking place uh, from Catalonia to Scotland, in France and in England. Uh, across Europe, there was a strong sense that, uh, uh, that uh, divine punishment was coming down. Parties uh, might be in retreat against uh, insurgent republicanism, uh, that the militarization of uh, society in the context, for example, of the Thirty Years' War was having blowback effects on domestic turbulence, that the stresses and strains uh, on the ability of monarchies to control parliaments and the battles, especially between the English Parliament and the, uh, the British Crown of Charles I, uh, often the exemplary uh, image of this, at this time, that this was a, a, a time of troubles, uh, a moment of particular turbulence uh, when the established order uh, was under attack, uh, its future was unclear, uh, that armies were to be found in the, the, the streets of uh, cities from Barcelona and Paris to London and uh, uh, Edinburgh, uh, and that therefore that this was a moment when the uh, the recurrent and destructive turbulence that contemporaries had read about in the Roman historians and poets was coming back with a vengeance in their own times. And so they reached for their, their Sallust uh, and their Lucan, their Cicero uh, and their uh, Augustine uh, to try and understand what was going on around them 
uh, as they called their own conflicts, uh, again, civil wars, not just riots, not just seditions or dissensions, but civil wars and even revolutions. And some of the, the language of revolution that we've inherited begins to spring up in this, this early period in the middle of the 17th century. As you describe in the book, though, one of the factors that's shaping this uh, development of the idea is the fact that they're having to now create a concept or define civil war in a way to make it distinct from revolution. I was wondering if you could explain that dynamic and how it was that they sort of, uh, you know, split that hair, if you will. Yes, that's that's uh, very important. It's, I, I think it's the, one of the pivotal moments that I uh, discerned in the course of my research is the the emergence of the modern concept of revolution, especially around the time of the French Revolution. Uh, if we think of revolution, um, we tend to think of it as something which is uh, future-oriented, um, transformative in uh, a positive way. Of course, there are counter-revolutions who would disagree with that, but the basic concept for revolutionaries themselves is this is a means of changing the present in order to improve the future. Um, it may uh, demand the tearing down of the existing order, but this is all for a good cause, human liberation uh, now uh, and uh, into the future. Uh, so that positive vision of revolution came to be uh, opposed to the very negative uh, vision of civil war as not something oriented to the future, but something that comes from the past, a deep atavistic past, not something which is positively transformative, but is only destructive, um, and not something which is fertile with open-ended utopian possibility, as revolutions were meant to be, uh, but something which was only uh, going to drag people further and deeper into their most uh, destructive uh, and uh, uh, debilitating forms of uh, a kind of circling conflict which leads nowhere uh, except to the grave. That process I, I show in uh, one of the crucial chapters of the book um, peaks in the course of the what we call the Age of Revolutions now, the era of the American and French Revolutions, though as I uh, implied earlier it does have roots going back into the 17th century. And One of the results of the separation of the, uh, the concepts of civil war and revolution uh, is that uh, what might, or indeed what were historically called civil wars, uh, often get rebranded as revolutions. So the example, key example I use in the book is what we now call the American Revolution uh, in the 1770s, say in 1774, 1775, um, uh, contemporaries on both sides of the Atlantic and both sides of the political uh, dispute that we now think of as the American Revolution talked about it as a civil war. Uh, a war among fellow Britons, uh, British colonists, and Britons back in uh, Great Britain itself, uh, and even talked about it when, when they narrowed their focus to the theatre of conflict in North America, even talked about it as the American Civil War. I think the first use of the term American Civil War I found is 1774-1775, of course not referring to what we now call the American Civil War, but referring to the early stages of the American Revolution. Um, and I, th I think it becomes uh, a rule thereafter uh, that uh, a successful civil war is called by its victors a revolution uh, retrospectively, that you rebrand a conflict as uh, a revolution if you win, uh, if you lose, or if you're on the victorious side against uh, those you see as insurgents, then you call it a civil war to delegitimate uh, your opponents. And that's, that's a pretty enduring opposition now between uh, uh, backward-looking and destructive 
and revolution as something forward-pointing, uh, fertile, um, and uh, utopian with transformative possibility. What we've been describing up until this point is a debate that is ideological, philosophical, rhetorical. When you get into the 19th century, though, you describe what is a new emerging dimension, which is the legal dimension. As you uh, summarize, and I, I just love this phrase about how in the 19th century, the, there's this growing effort to bring civil wars under the domain of law. And I was wondering if you could explain exactly why it was that this con why this begins in the 19th century and how it interacts with the concepts of civil war that you've just described. Yes, I mean, it, it take, takes us back to the character I mentioned very briefly at the, uh, the origins of my interest in this topic, Francis Lieber, uh, who, again, just to fill in a bit of the background, he was born in Prussia. Uh, he fought at the Battle of Waterloo, indeed was left for dead on, on the battlefield at Waterloo, later migrated to uh, the United States, where he taught first in South Carolina and then later at Columbia College, now Columbia University, and in the middle of the uh, the conflict in the 1860s in North America, uh, he was tapped by Henry Halleck, a Union general who was also himself a lawyer, uh, to put together a codification of the laws of war for the Union army. Uh, and Lieber was very much aware that this was the first attempt that had ever been made by a lawyer uh, to lay down the rules for armed combat in a, in a really systematic way. There were, of course various customs, and there was a, a more general legal literature about the norms for uh, pursuing combat uh, that had been uh, elaborated since at least the late 16th century. But he was the first to provide a code, and it was literally going to be um, a handy pocket-sized guide uh, that could be slipped into the tunic uh, of uh, a Union soldier uh, if he needed to uh, refresh his memory or to consult uh, him. Uh, uh, a set of uh, norms and rules in the course of warfare itself. And while he was putting together this code, which became hugely influential, it's the basis for the Hague Conventions of the late 19th century, which in turn mentions that uh, still uh, uh, determine uh, the, uh, the norms of warfare uh, into the 21st century. So it's a really primal work here. Uh, uh, as, as Lieber himself was trying to put together this code, he sent a draft of it to his boss, wrote back and said, this is fantastic, it's exactly what I'm looking for for my troops, uh, but we need a definition of civil war. And that this was the correspondence that I, I discovered uh, at the Huntington Library, where he writes back to, his, uh, uh, to Halleck and says, you know, I've been scouring the legal literature, uh, I've not been able to find a definition of civil war, I'm going to try and come up with one. So he faces the di dilemma of doing what lawyers have to do to provide hard-edged definitions of concepts in order to show uh, deviations or offenses uh, against them, and uh, has great difficulty coming up with that definition of civil war. And when he does, he doesn't define it precisely against revolution, but he does define it against insurrection and also against rebellion in the course of completing the Lima Code itself. So his struggle to, to civilize civil war, I put it in, in, the, in the book, to provide norms and constraints on the behavior of armies and the soldiers within them in the context not of just conflict between states, as of course the Confederacy construed that, that particular conflict, uh, but within a particular state against rebels, uh, that, that effort 
uh, led him to produce the first legal definition of civil war, um, and one that, uh, as, as I sh- again I show in the book, turns out to be uh, quite unstable, quite contradictory, uh, and very controversial in itself. So the effort to uh, to constrain civil war within law um, proves too much, at least for Lieber, and continues to be a challenge even to this day. I was reading that, and I was thinking about how it was, you know, really a very timely product, considering that. In the 1850s, you started having your first international conferences to impose norms on war in other ways. And in that sense, it was very, uh, uh, it was, it was it, something like this, you know, problem, you know, might have very well have been inevitable. And what I thought was especially interesting in your discussion of it was how it then comes into play into this ongoing ideological, political, sectional debate about what uh, that conflict in the 1860s was that doesn't just end in 1865, but continues throughout the rest of the 19th century into the early 20th century. I, I thought it was fascinating how you, you pinpoint this uh, debate in 1907 about pensions and how that's the point at which Congress actually uses, you know, puts it in law, describing it. This what you know labels it as a civil war, and how even at that point you had Southern uh, members of Congress who were saying it was not a civil war, and and, and how it it shows that intersection between the legal and the rhetorical, and, and how it really was uh, an important, uh, and and how that interacted to try to define exactly what civil war was. Yeah, the intersection between the legal and not just the rhetorical, but exactly, as you say, the ideological as well, that, uh, uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, naming is always framing, and I think that's particularly true of wars. Uh, somebody calculated a few years ago that there are more than 120 different names for the conflict in North America between 1861 and 1865. Uh, many of them, of course, coming from uh, the South or the former Confederacy, uh, with very different um, implied conceptions of who was responsible for the war or what it was fought for. So a war between the states uh, was taking the view that, of course, the Confederacy's independence was legitimately uh, claimed, uh, and they were fighting as um, uh, an internationally recognizable state, if not internationally recognized state, against another state of the United States versus the Confederacy. Mr. Lincoln's War, to take another uh, example, of course, attributing the the onus, the responsibility for the beginning of the war to Lincoln himself, not to uh, the, uh, the the Confederate secession. And one could go on with many of these different naming some some of them quite quite trivial and amusing, but uh, there's a great deal at stake in the, the framing of that conflict. Who was responsible for it? What was its purpose? Um, how would it be conceived in legal terms, domestically, but also in international legal terms in relation to a claim to statehood, for instance? So even something as trivial as the name of the war uh, continued to resonate, as you say. Uh, 1907 is the first time I found a determination by the U.S. Congress in that debate that, that you referenced uh, to call it the Civil War rather than the war between the states. Uh, but uh, there are still places uh, in, the, in the South and the United States today where uh, you can get into a heated debate uh, about what to call that particular conflict. And uh, even more seriously, obviously, in the, uh, the past one year or so, the uh, the, the heated uh, disputes we've seen about uh, removing uh, uh, throughout uh, the South and, el- and elsewhere uh, are a sign that uh, some of the, uh, the passions and the different conceptions of that particular conflict that have animated debate uh, since the 1860s, uh, those passions have not cooled uh, yet. 
Um, and as I point out in the book, one of the uh, enduring analyses of civil war is that it can be like a volcano, or it's uh, it's it's like the uh, the lava field around a volcano that the, the ashes seem to have cooled, but they can heat up at any time. And I think the debate around the Confederate monuments is just one example of that. That uh, uh, even with uh, the coincidence of that with violence in Charlottesville is a sign that this is not merely uh, rhetorical or legal or ideological. It can actually turn into uh, open and deadly violence as well, even today in the 21st century. One of the other things that uh, has been taking place over the course of the 20th century, as you describe in the book, is that this debate is assuming a global importance. In the 20th century, as you described, there there almost seems to be this, this, this uh, uh, fetish for defining wars precisely. And you go in, your, in your, that chapter, you, you talk about how all these different classifications of war merge in different contexts in dealing with different conflicts. How does the civil debate about what is a civil war uh, evolve into that, and, and how does it shape or reshape the ongoing discourse? Yes, I mean there are uh, two very broad elements uh, to this that I pick out in the book. One is. Uh, as, as, as you, you mentioned, uh, what, what I call the globalization of civil war, uh, the apprehension that civil war is a global phenomenon that uh, in the period, especially after 1945, and then in the context of uh, decolonization in particular in the 1960s and 70s, uh, that civil wars could be found uh, all over the globe. Uh, and then in some sense, therefore, this was a global phenomenon at the same time as wars between states were declining and that what uh, some scholars have called a long peace between states uh, was spreading onto a global scale. There's also the apprehensions uh, that these uh, uh, particular conflicts scattered around the globe might be symptoms of a larger global civil war uh, connected in particular when that term is first used in the early 60s uh, by uh, people like Hannah Arendt or even John F. Kennedy. That global civil war is sometimes cast as the Cold War itself being a civil war, dividing mankind, as Kennedy said uh, in his second State of the Union address. So there is that apprehension that civil war is a global phenomenon and might even be uh, all-encompassing of uh, humani- a divided humanity itself. The second aspect of this, and the, uh, the one that relates again to the legalization of, of, uh, of war or the attempt to civilize civil war, is the greater elaboration of constraints on war through the revision of the Geneva Conventions after the Second World War. And that opens up uh, a very important uh, set of arguments about whether civil wars, wars internal to a single state, uh, can be regulated in the same way as wars between states. So a category emerges um, in the period immediately after the Second World War uh, in the context of the committees revising the Geneva Conventions, the category is non-international armed conflict, which is the kind of technical roundabout way of describing what we might call in, in, in general speech a civil war, uh, a conflict which rises to the level of a war, an armed conflict, but one that takes place within a single uh, political community or state or nation, not one that takes place between uh, states or nations. So it's non-international. Uh, a NIAC, indeed, is the term. When I first started hearing that from international lawyers, I had no idea what they were talking about until I realized, ah, NIAC, non-international armed conflict. And so if we fast forward to uh, the near present, just to give you one concrete example of the consequences of this 
drawing of legal boundaries, especially in the context of the Geneva Conventions. If we think back to the very early stages of the, uh, what we call the civil war in Syria, that is in 2011-2012, um, it took the International Committee of the Red Cross more than a year uh, to provide a public determination that what was going on in Syria was indeed a, quote, non-international armed conflict. By the time they had handed down that determination in the summer of 2012, an estimated 17,000 people had already died in Syria, and many Syrians uh, were uh, and had been for some time calling. Why did that matter? Why did it matter what the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross said about this? Uh, it mattered because it needed uh, an international organ like, like the Red Cross to make that determination in order, for example, that humanitarian aid could go into Syria. Um, if this was, uh, if, if what became called the Syrian civil war was in fact just a police action by Bashar al-Assad uh, against some unruly elements in his own uh, country, uh, then outside powers would have no right to intervene, nor would, nor would international aid agencies or NGOs like the Red Cross. However, this rose to the level of a non-international armed conflict and therefore subject to some of the provisions of the Geneva Conventions, uh, then humanitarian aid could be taken in. Also, uh, evidence could be collected that might be used at war crimes trials uh, after the end of the conflict, and, and, and it's, of course, not in sight at the moment. Um, so I, I talk in the book about uh, how these decisions about what to call a conflict are not merely semantic. I don't believe anything is ever merely semantic. They're not rhetorical. They're not even just ideological. They have real-life consequences, indeed life and death consequences, uh, for thousands of people on the ground uh, in uh, conflicts or conflict-torn uh, regions like Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, for instance, uh, that continue to shape their lives. So a lot hangs on these uh, decisions now. And that's, that's one reason I wrote the book, was to expose why it matters what we call these conflicts, and in particular to expose uh, the, the roots of the frameworks, the legal frameworks, uh, the social science frameworks, the ethical frameworks, the historical frameworks within which we understand uh, contemporary conflict. The vast majority, almost all contemporary conflicts, um, by a couple of very trivial examples, are non-international armed conflicts, many of which, of course, draw in outside powers. So if we are to think about war at all in the 21st century, it is to think about civil war. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm trying to work on a more hopeful subject now, um, uh, 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 looking forward to, uh, to, to uh, peace, and uh, peace in particular as, as an element of a larger project on treaty making uh, over about the last 500 years. Um, if, if you go to uh, the United Nations website, uh, they have a collection there of something like a quarter of a million made around the world since 1945. Uh, I think more aspects of um, more parts of our lives than we uh, can even begin to be aware are uh, organized and controlled by treaties. Then I want to bring uh, treaty making and its consequences to a wider audience and to do that as a historian thinking about what is a treaty, uh, how important are they in forming the international order, uh, how they regulate such things as the relationship between indigenous peoples in uh, settled societies like New Zealand uh, and Canada also in, in the United States as well. And so to, th to think about that, uh, the way in which we bind ourselves together through 
contracts uh, between uh, sovereigns, states, sometimes companies, uh, indigenous peoples through treaty making as perhaps a more hopeful uh, way of thinking about um, uh, international relations on a global scale over the past five centuries, more hopeful at least than civil civil wars was. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I hope we could have you back to uh, discuss your book once it comes out. I'll be delighted to, to join you then. Uh, better hurry up. <laughs> well, well, David, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Mark. I really enjoyed it.